Welcome to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse along with you this weekend. We join you from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. Great to have you with us for baseball talk on the radio. And it is the hot stove season. And for the Indians now, the hot stove really heating up this week with a lot of transactions, specifically last night. The Indians very active in the trade market with all-star catcher Jan Gomes heading to Washington. And uh, three players will eventually be coming back to the Indians, and we will have much more on that shortly here on Tribe Talk. But a couple of housekeeping items first before we move forward. If you want to catch our show, you can do so right here on the Indians Radio Network on any of your favorite Indians Radio Network stations, specifically in Cleveland on our flagship WTAM, and then check your local listings if you are uh, in an affiliate market for the Indians Radio Network. Also, you can check us out online at Indians.com or on iTunes. Download it as a podcast and listen to it whenever you like. Just go to Apple iTunes and you can download it at Cleveland Indians Podcast. Coming up on our show a little bit later on, we will hear from Tribe Relief pitcher Dan Otero. Dan just returned from Japan where he was playing with a team of major league stars who took on an all-star contingent from the Japanese leagues and a highly spirited uh, series of six games over in Japan, both in Tokyo and then in some other areas of Japan as well. And uh, Dan will fill us in on how things went on the field and off the field as well. A very interesting trip for him. We'll hear from Indians Senior Vice President Bob DiBiasio. He'll have a tribe tale for us at the tail end of our show. But when we return, as you know by now, the Indians very active in the trade market last night, and we will hear from Indians president of baseball operations, Chris Antonetti, on the trade of Jan Gomes to the Washington Nationals. That comes your way shortly after this timeout. On the Cleveland Clinic Indians Radio Network. Welcome back to Sports View. Next topic, is it really all about power? Makes me think of Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Gives you the power to find options based on your budget. Let's go to Chuck for an irrelevant analogy. Man, back in the day, people didn't ask how many oranges are in the crate. They just took the oranges. They didn't say, are there 6, 7, 12, 15, whatever. It was just oranges. You get me? We get you, Chuck. In a word, oranges. Give it to us straight with the Progressive Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Payoff pitch. Runner goes. Pitch hit high. Hit deep to left. Jay is back. Track wall. This ball is. It is gone. It's a game-winning walk-off two-run home run to left. Jan Gomes has done it. The Indians in the bottom of the ninth inning walk it off on a towering blast to left by Jan Gomes. And the Indians are a three-to-one winner in the bottom of the ninth. Batanzas checks second. His payoff pitch. Swung on, banged to third. Down the line it goes. Fair ball. Base hit into the corner. Here comes Jackson. The Indians win it. What an at-bat by Jan Goals. And on the tenth pitch of the at-bat, He banged a single down the third baseline into the left field corner, scoring Jackson from second. And the Indians, in one of the most improbable comebacks in Indians playoff history, 
down eight to three with two down in the sixth. Rally against one of the best bullpens in the game. And they shocked the New York Yankees nine to eight in 13 innings and take a commanding two games to none lead in the American League Division Series. Welcome back to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse back with you from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. And uh, a lot of great memories, as you just heard right there, from Tribe catcher Jan Gomes in a six-year stint with the Indians. First broke in with the Tribe back in 2013 after being traded from the Blue Jays in a trade that will always go down as one of the best that the Indians have made considering what Gomes accomplished in his six seasons with the Tribe. They traded Mike Avilas and Esmeal Rogers to Toronto for an unknown kind of utility player. At that point, he had been playing some some first base, third base, outfield catching, and the Indians saw some potential there behind the plate, and oh man, was there a lot of potential, and uh, he lived up to that and became one of the top flight catchers in the American League, culminating in an all-star appearance this past season. He's been a silver slugger in the past, and uh, the Indians trading at a high point in terms of his value and hoping that outfielder Daniel Johnson, who spent this past season mainly with Double-A Harrisburg, in the national system. Uh, He's regarded as very much a top-flight power-hitting prospect. He was the minor league player of the year in the national system back in 2017, and he was rated by Baseball America this past season as the best power hitter among nationals prospects. So uh, a lot to like there, and uh, certainly shows up on some other charts as well in terms of Uh, some of the top prospects for the Nationals. The Indians also receiving a relief pitcher, a right-hander by the name of Jeffrey Rodriguez. And Rodriguez spent most of last season with AA Harrisburg and also AAA Syracuse, but also some time in the major leagues with the Nationals. He appeared in 14 games. And we say relief pitcher, but uh, most of his career in the minor leagues has been spent starting. But uh, obviously right now the Indians full in that regard, so he could be used out of the pen if indeed he makes the team coming out of spring training. A year ago with Washington in his major league debut, 3-3 three and three with an earned run average of 5.71. The Indians also... Uh, Yesterday, in addition to the big trade, they had to offer contracts to uh, some of their 40-man roster members or risk losing them or non-tendering them. And among those added or signing contracts, right-handed pitcher Nick Goody, who was limited to a dozen games a year ago with an elbow injury. Right-hander Neil Ramirez, who appeared in 47 games and was tough when the Indians needed him most. Uh, early on in the season, and then some inconsistency after that, but uh, certainly a valuable power arm. Danny Salazar, who did not pitch due to injury last year, he has been re-signed, and infielder Eric Stamets also re-signed. He spent his entire season at AAA Columbus a year ago, uh, appearing in 78 games, had some injury issues that he was working through. So a lot going on for the Tribe in terms of transactions yesterday, and uh, last night, In the evening hours, Chris Antonetti, the Indians president of baseball operations, explained it all to the Cleveland media. Tonight we agreed to trade Jan Gomes to the Washington Nationals in exchange for uh, Daniel Johnson, Jeffrey Rodriguez, and a player to be named later. Uh, With this trade, we feel we've acquired two upper-level prospects to add to our system. 
Daniel Johnson is an athletic 23-year-old left-handed in the outfielder. Very good combination of power and speed in double-A last year. Capable of playing all three spots in the outfield. He spent most of his time in, in center field and right field, and we believe he has a chance to contribute and help us at the major league level at some point over the next few years. And with Jeffrey Rodriguez, he's a 25-year-old right-handed pitcher uh, that's had some major league experience. He has an above-average fastball and curveball with a developing changeup, and we think he can come into camp and come into spring training with a chance to compete for a spot in our pitching staff. And if he doesn't make that, he, again, adds to our upper-level pitching depth and could be a contributor for us next year. Obviously, can't get into specifics on the player to be named later. will be another player of some value that we do like. And with that, I will uh, – actually, before I open up the questions, I do want to take a minute just to talk about uh, Jan Gomes for a minute because he's been such an important member of our organization since the time we acquired him in 2013. Um, in that time since we acquired Jan, we've had the opportunity to watch him grow and develop from an unheralded AAA corner utility player to an all-star caliber major league catcher. And he's been an instrumental part of our team and our success and has helped lead us to, to the best record in the American League over the past six years. And not only has he been a great performer on the field, he's been a leader in the clubhouse and a great ambassador for the organization within the community. So. You know, we greatly appreciate Jan's contributions to the organization, and, and he and his wife, Jenna, who, who made so many contributions to the Cleveland community in their time here, will, will definitely be missed. And with that, I'll open up the questions. Chris, are you you guys confident uh, Roberto and, and Eric Haas can handle the catching position? Like, do you guys feel like you're set there? Yeah, we are. We did trade from an area of depth here. Uh, for a while, you've heard us continue to say we feel we have two regular catchers within the organization and uh, at the major league level. And now Roberto will have an opportunity to step and, and be that regular guy. And he's done that for us over the course of the past few seasons when Jan's been injured. And he's demonstrated that ability to, to lead our pitching staff and has caught some of the most meaningful games that we've played over the last five or six years, including the run in 2016 postseason. Chris, do you foresee making a move where you lose Corey Kluber, Trevor Bauer, or Carlos Carrasco? I have no idea. I think where we are right now is we are at the early stages of the offseason in which we're focused on trying to build a team that's capable of winning another American League Central team in 2019, but is also positioned for six beyond that. And so, as I've shared with you in the past, there's been, you know, we're in a fortunate position that we have a lot of players on our team that other teams value. And that leads to a lot of conversations this time of the year. Can I ask it this way, Chris, how much trepidation would there be in trading from a, a position of strength like you have in your starting pitching? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't want to get into any speculation around that, Tom. So, um, I think we do view that to be a, our starting pitching to be a strength of our team and our organization. And that's something we place a great deal of value on. Hey, Chris, anything to announce with the, uh, your arbitration eligibles and did this trade, the, the, you know, the money saved in this trade, does that, did that impact those decisions in any way? So yes, we've agreed to a handful of um, contracts with our arbitration eligible players, Nick Goody, Danny Salazar, we agreed to terms with, uh, we also uh, non-tendered James Hoyt, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to, to re-sign James. What, uh, Chris, what went into the decision with Salazar? 
know, Danny continues to progress well in his rehab at this point, and we've all seen what he's capable of, of, of doing when he's healthy. And we think he's on a good path and are hopeful he can be a contributing member of our pitching staff next year. And with Neil Ramirez, you know, what, what, what did you like about him? I know he had some ups, and, you know, some extreme ups and downs last year. He did. He, for, for a while in that time when our bullpen was really struggling, Neil and Oliver came in and, and stabilized it. And he pitched some really meaningful innings for us. We felt last year was a step forward in his development. And hopefully he's on the path to being a regular contributor for us moving forward. But he's got stuff and, and we've seen what he's capable of doing when he's when he's right and at his best. With, with the player to be named, is there a, a deadline that, that you'd have to complete this by? There are. It, it will be towards the end or towards the start of the season next year. Uh, but we expect to complete it well in advance of that. Uh, Chris, can you just speak to the you know the market? Obviously, you know it was a, it was a light year for offensive um, performance from catchers, and um, so I'm sure there's a lot of interest in Jan. Can you just speak to how this you know course of time over, over which this came together that this winter was sure. something that you've been talking to Nationals all winter, or did he heat up recently? Yeah, I think the, the Nationals have expressed consistent interest in, you know, in Jan, uh, really from the offseason, and they were one of a handful of teams that expressed interest in him. I think the catching position was an interesting one, is that there were a number of teams that were seeking to upgrade their alternatives at catcher, and there were also a number of alternatives on the market, both free agency and trade. So that was the dynamic that we were navigating uh, at the start of the offseason, and they got to a point on a deal that we thought made sense for us. And, you know, you've traded two catchers now in, you know, four and a half months. Um, obviously, that's a difficult thing to do in any circumstance, but it seems like uh, Haas, the way he kind of took a step forward this year, was a, a big element for you guys. Yeah, both Roberto and Eric were big um, considerations as we thought about, you know, making both of those deals. Um, we recognize that we have lost some depth in that area, but uh, we do feel good with the with the guys we have going in the camp. I would expect that over the course of the winter, it's an area we will look to add depth if at all possible. Chris, how is how is Goody progressing? He's he's progressing well. Um, we again are hopeful that he'll have a um, be able to ramp up his throwing. He's thrown off the mound a couple of times already out in Arizona, and you know we're hopeful that he can continue on the path he's on and and be healthy for us at the start. So there it is, a busy day for the Tribe transaction-wise. And uh, before we head to break, just a, a personal note on Jan Gomes. Uh, my first real memory of, of Gomes and uh, what he could be for this ball club came back in 2013. He was in spring training that year, got to know him a little bit after his trade from Toronto uh, that prior off season. And I can remember I had gone to breakfast at a place called the Black Bear Diner, a greasy spoon just outside the complex there in Goodyear, Arizona. And earlier in the day, Jan had been told that he would not make the ball club coming out of spring training. Terry Francona, in his first season as manager, had to deliver that tough news. And Jan and his wife, Jenna, were finishing up their breakfast at the same time. And, and I remember stopping by, and uh, he had been so impressive in the spring. And you could just tell he was down. He thought he had made the club. And uh, it was a tough time that it was still fresh, just the conversation with Tito that he would not be on the ball club to start the season. But, uh, boy, I just remember thinking, leaving there after chatting with him for just a little bit, that uh, here was a guy who was going to go down and, and do what he needed to do to get back. And, and sure enough, after an injury, 
allowed him to come back after just a, a couple of weeks down at AAA. He really made an impression in 2013, and by season's end, he was the regular catcher for the Indians. And the following year was his silver slugger season in 2014 with the 21 homers and 74 runs driven in. Some injury issues really stymied him in 15 and 16, especially so in 16 when he just couldn't be a part of the Indians' run to the World Series. But uh, last year and then this year especially with the All-Star selection and a big finish to his year, he was once again uh, that major force for the Indians. They'll miss him, the bat and the glove as well. And uh, we'll see if, if this opens the door to some good things now for regular playing time for Roberto Perez. That's what the Indians are counting on. And best of luck to Jan Gomes, always a, a stand-up guy, fun to talk to, and uh, first class all the way during his time here with the Indians. Stay tuned. We'll have more to come after this timeout on the Cleveland Clinic Indians Radio Network. Welcome back to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse back with you from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. Great to have you with us for baseball talk on the radio. And we continue now with Indians relief pitcher Dan Otero, just back from a visit to Japan with a group of major league players as part of a team that competed against an all-star contingent from Japan in a six-game series over there. And uh, certainly a fun time had by all in terms of seeing a new country for many. And uh, Dan Otero had never been to Japan before, so a great opportunity for he and his wife Tiffany to take in some of the sights of uh, a country in the Far East that not many of us have had an opportunity to go visit. Otero appeared in three games in the tour. He was 0-1 with an earned run average of 4.50. And when we caught up with him earlier this week, he talked about not only on the field, but how special an experience it was off the field as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rosie. Um, no, it was a great experience. You know, when I was asked to go, it was kind of an no-brainer to say yes. And uh, you had to ramp it up a little bit, like you said, to pitch in the middle of November. But it really wasn't that out of out of the norm. And uh, it was really cool to be able to play against, you know, top-notch competition from from over there and uh, to play with a lot of uh, really good players from the, from the MLB side as well. And what is the mindset for, for all those guys, whether it be position players or pitchers, uh, after going through the, the rigors of, of the Major League Baseball season? I know for some, they, they played in the postseason too. Yeah, I mean, I think we all took it as a, as an, as a really cool experience. Um, obviously, we kind of wish we would have performed a little better against the uh, Japanese team, but uh, they were really good. And I know they had uh, continued their training from the end of the season on because they're getting ready for the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. So that was kind of the team we played. And uh, to be able to be a part of a different group of players on the MLB side was really neat, you know, to play with guys as young as, you know, Juan Soto or Acuna and then, you know, a future Hall of Famer and Yachty behind the plate. It was just a, a really uh, dis- really diverse uh, group. Now, I know in the States uh... – Major league wise, you'll you'll face the occasional Japanese hitter, uh, 
so you have an idea of how to face them. But uh, were there some things that you that you saw facing a team full of Japanese hitters that that maybe you're not accustomed to or are used to seeing? Well, I, I do think uh, the uh, the launch angle revolution has not traveled to Japan. I think they uh, they still evolved by the don't strike out, put the ball in play mode. So we, we definitely noticed that as pitchers the first couple of games. We're like, man, we can't put these guys away. And no matter you know how nasty the pitch was, if it was down in the zone, up in the zone, they were really trying to get on top of the ball, put the ball in play. And we noticed by the end of the series, uh, we're asking around, most of the fields are our turf. So they may have something to do with it. They're trying to just kind of pound the ball on the ground and run. And they're very good at that. Uh, but at the same time, there were a few guys. One comes to mind, uh, Yanagita. He uh, he was really good, you know, powered all fields, and he looked to drive the ball early in the count and then spray the ball late in the count. So it was uh, it was really impressive watching watching that group hit. And maybe it's not a, a fair question because you're facing a, an all star team per se over there, but it depends who you talk to on the level of competition over there and, and how good the the level of play is. Um, we see some of the best that come over here, like Otani and, and Ichiro and players mm-hmm. like that. But uh, can you compare it to a, a level of baseball that you see here in the States? Well, yeah, the team we played, I mean, those are big league caliber players all top to bottom. You know, they're, everything about it, whether they their speed, their arm strengths, you know, everything. Uh, Pitching-wise, they had great stuff. So it was just like playing major league competition, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, they took it to us pretty good, so it was hard to argue against it. Dan Otero joining us, Indians pitcher, who was part of the the major league team that went and played a team of Japanese all-stars just recently completed over in Japan. All right, off the field. Uh, <laughs> what was it like over there, first time there, uh, some of the differences that, that you noticed in their culture? It was it was remarkable. You know, we didn't know what to expect. I was able to go over with my wife, and we were able to leave the kids in the States. So we were able to travel around and sightsee and do some of the touristy stuff, and it was really cool. You know, their culture is it's really unique. And uh, one thing I can say is they're very disciplined. You know, everything they do over there is very disciplined and regimented. And uh, I was telling, I think I've told everybody this about my trip over there is there was not a speck of trash on the side of the street anywhere we went. And at the same time, there were no trash cans on the side of the street. So it was just kind of remarkable how when you eat food or you order coffee, you drink it or eat it in the restaurant. You don't walk up and down the street with your food. So is this a different, that part is very different than the States. You know, you walk on the streets in Chicago or New York or LA, everybody's got their Starbucks coffee or sandwiches and stuff like that. So naturally you end up with wrappers on the ground. And that just, we never saw that in any city we went to in Japan, which I thought was really unique. I know you spent some time in Tokyo and you mentioned some major cities here in the States. Uh, you hear about Tokyo being as populated as any mm-hmm. city in the world. Does it feel crowded or because of some of the, the discipline you were talking about, maybe maybe not so? No, it definitely feels crowded in certain parts. We went to uh, the Shibuya district, which I guess is known for the busiest intersection in the world. And they uh, it kind of has a Times Square feel to it. But we, I mean, we just sat there and sat through like two or three light changes just to see the sea of people crossing the street at one time. There's probably seven or eight crosswalks going every which way. And if you get a chance, you should YouTube Shibuya 
intersection and it is crazy what happens in that little intersection <laughs> so there's a lot of cool cool parts of our trip all right how about food how was the food and uh, did you try anything that you hadn't tried before um there was really anything i hadn't tried before but i'm I, I enjoy exotic food so i really enjoyed food you know we did some authentic sushi my wife wasn't the biggest fan of that so i ate all of hers uh definitely tried some ramen which I'd never really had that much before. So it was really cool trying the different types of ramen in the different cities. Um, so yeah, we definitely explored and did a lot of different stuff. Uh, one of the, one of the dishes I remember pretty vividly is called the shabu shabu. So it's a style of cooking where you basically get raw meat and you cook it yourself. Um, so it's similar to like a melting pot type deal or Korean barbecue, but the way they do it is just, I don't know. It's really different. And, uh, it was really good. Now, spring training for the Indians and Goodyear is coming. It, it sounded like your abbreviated spring training per se for this trip uh, came in a real nice location. Where, where did you guys train for this before uh, you actually played games in Japan? Yeah, we all met up in uh, Hawaii, Hawaii actually, for a couple of days before we left for Tokyo. So uh, that was my first time in Hawaii as well. So I got to cross off uh, two really cool spots off my bucket list. <laughs> Dan Otero joining us, uh, just back from uh, Major League Baseball's All-Star Team Tour of Japan to play the Japanese All-Stars. And uh, Dan, uh, just a, a couple of quick thoughts on, on what you've seen so far in the offseason. Uh, obviously, some changes coming for the Indians uh, when they head to spring training next year. What are some of your thoughts on, on what you're seeing so far and, and, and what you think might happen now between now and spring training? I try not to speculate too much. I mean, going into every season, there's always changes and there's always a new narrative that maybe take over the takes over the 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 minds of people during spring training. So I don't try not to think about that too much. But uh, I'm just looking forward to getting started. I really am. I don't think last year ended again the way anybody wanted to. And on a personal level, my season wasn't very good on the surface. So I'm really looking forward to getting back and being around the team and uh, get getting back to work. And along those lines, what do you try and do in an off season to to get back to to some of the results that you had your first couple of seasons in Cleveland? Uh, I think it's just kind of getting back to the basics and doing what I do best, and also reassessing maybe if I need to make adjustments, you know, based on how hitters are maybe approaching me, or you know, seeing the same hitters over and over again, maybe seeing if they're changing their approach in general or against me in particular. So I don't know. It's a combination of things, but trying not to at the same time overcomplicate it. You know, anytime I think a player overcomplicates things, it just causes more, <laughs> more dilemmas. So I'm trying to keep it simple and uh, keep my body in shape and uh, we'll hopefully uh, have a much better year coming up. Well, I'm sure the the trip to Japan was a lot of fun and and a good part of your year, to be sure. And, uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming by. Enjoy the holiday season, and we'll see you soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Rosie. You too. Happy holidays. That's Dan Otero, Indians relief pitcher, who will begin his fourth season with the Tribe in 2019. And we look forward to seeing Dan at Tribe Fest coming up shortly after the new year on January the 12th. Stay tuned. Our final segment of Tribe Talk continues after this timeout on the Cleveland Clinic Indians Radio Network. Progressive presents Get Pumped, inspiration to help you do insurance stuff. Okay, time out. You're going to let your budget be the boss of you? Take control with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. 
Tell us what you want to pay for car insurance, and we'll help you find options that fit your budget. Here's some music to get you pumped. Da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, da -dum, dang, dang. I hear your budget laughing at you. Oh, wait, that's just those kids laughing at me. Ignore them! Da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Tribe Talk, our final segment from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. And let's check in with Indians Senior Vice President Bob DiBiasio. It's time for another Tribe Tale. It's time for another Tribe Tale with Bob DiBiasio. Joining me now on Tribe Tales is former number one draft pick in 1972, outfielder Rick Manning. And Arch, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us. Oh, my pleasure. When you just said 72, that's a flashback. <laughs> that's going back a long time. That's a long yes, time. Which means you're a grandpa. Oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a grand, uh, grandfather of six, believe it or not. I got two grandsons here in Cleveland. AJ and Nick. I've got two granddaughters out in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I've got uh, a, a grandson and a granddaughter out in the Bay Area, San Francisco, for my daughter Jessie. So that yes, they keep me busy. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. 1972 first round draft pick. Uh, I think the draft is a little bit different back then than it is today. Were you still in school when the draft happened? I Yes, I was. I was uh, 17 years old. It was uh, June 6th was the draft. We never got out of school about the 20th of June. As a matter of fact, when, when they called me and I met with the Indians, I was still in high school. I took off from school a week before the draft to, to go to Florida just to get away from everything and everybody because, you know, people were calling and I was acting like I wasn't home. But And I, I, I had a phone call and I knew the Indians were going to take me and so they could have me by the phone and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it, it was hectic and it was, it was fun. And, you know, that never happened in Niagara Falls, New York. The only <laughs> other guy that played in the big leagues was Sal, Bar uh, Sal Lamagli. Really? Sal the Barber, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was something pretty special back in those days. Well, you were the number two pick overall. So you weren't sitting in math class and <laughs> they came in, the principal comes in and says, hey, there's a phone call for you? No, I skipped school. Shocking. I can't tell anybody that, but I did. And no, it was it was pretty strange because he, then after I was drafted, I – my dad and I had to drive up to Cleveland and meet with Gabe Paul and Phil Segi to, you know, try and get a deal done. And I came up here in, in June. Uh, they were playing the Boston Red Sox, so it, it was pretty cool. When you broke into the big leagues, uh, Dwayne Kuyper, one of your buddies, Dennis Eckersley, uh, that crew from uh, was it Oklahoma City? Is the team? Yeah, yeah your Triple A yeah. team. Uh, you joined the team in 75, but it was after opening day, so you did play for Frank Robinson, weren't there for his uh, inaugural uh, day when he uh, hit the home run on opening day, but talk about playing for Frank as we uh, honored him uh, with a statue a year ago. Well, when I was a kid growing up, I watched him play, and he was a great ball player. Still is to this day one of the best ball players ever, I thought. 
And it was uh, it was something really special because you watch that Oriole team that he played on, and they were in the World Series every year with Brooks and Frank and Boog, and got a chance to see Boog the other day. And when we were in Baltimore, he stopped by. So Frank was uh, really uh, – I, I loved it because he demanded – you go out there and you play the game hard like he played. I mean, he, he was uh, no nonsense. He took it very serious. I learned some very good lessons because it was a veteran team. And, you know, they started to infuse it with some young players like myself and Kuiper and Eckersley that year. And uh, it was an honor. Um, I learned a lot of baseball. He would never let me hit the ball in the air because I could run so fast. He made me hit the ball on the ground and hit it the other way and, and do a bunch of things like that. But like nowadays, the, the game has changed because they can swing and strike out, and it doesn't matter. Right? They didn't want you to strike out back then. It's put the ball in play, and maybe something would happen. But you know, Frank, um, I think he, the, he was such a great player. Sometimes the game might have been easier for him, and he expected pitchers to do things better than you know he'd get upset when they he they walked hitters or did something like that. But um, he knew the game of baseball, and you know he was he was walking that 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 road where he was the first black manager. Uh, you know, in in the history of baseball, so it was something pretty cool to watch him go through that, and uh, you know, just be a part of it. '76, you win a Gold Glove. One of the easiest plays you ever made, though, was Lenny yeah. Barker's perfect game out, right? And it, you know what? That's a funny <laughs> thing. You're right. I won a Gold Glove in '76, and yeah, in, in 1981, May 15th, that last out might have been the easiest <laughs> catch I ever had to make, and I was just screaming. I knew before the ball went up I was going to catch it. I had Charbonneau in left and I had uh, George Order in right and I said, nobody's going to catch it. It's coming to me. I didn't care where it was at. And it just happened to be that way. And uh, yeah, something very, very special. Yeah, that was one of the great nights uh, in the 80s for sure. Uh, when you think back at your uh, eight and a half years uh, as a ball player, uh, it's crazy. Twice as many years in the broadcast booth as you uh, were on the field, which is remarkable how time flies. But reflect a little bit on your time as a Cleveland Indian. Well, I'll tell you, it was something very, very special to me. I came up here when I was a kid, 20 years old. I was in the big leagues, and it seemed like every weekend, because we were so close to Niagara Falls, boatloads of guys used to come, and that was a big old stadium. And, you know, normally you'd get six tickets, four family, two guests. I was leaving 20 and 30, it seemed like, every weekend for these friends and family that would come up. But, um, I, you know, that's where I cut my teeth. I was a member of the Clevelanders. They treated me so well um, when I first came up. I was the young kid at the time. And, you know, for 20 years old, uh, Eckersley and myself, and Kipe was about 23, 24 when he got up here. It was fun coming up with people that you played in the minor leagues with. You know, I mean, that helped because when you finally get to the big leagues, I, I was playing with stars like Boog Paul and Rico Cardi and guys that have, have been there for a long, long time. And you finally realize that you belong in the big leagues. And Cleveland was, uh, is just like where I grew up, man. The people are something special. They, they expect you to work hard. You, know, you, you play hard and you do things the right way and they love you. They don't care. If you, if you slough and, you, and you're not a blue-collar guy, they'll hate you and they, they won't like you. But this, this town has been – it's like I grew up here. I was born and raised in, in New York, upstate. But I, this is like – it feels like it's my true home, Cleveland, because I've been here since 1975. Well, we've had an awful lot of fun over yes, the years together, yes, Arch, and yeah. let's continue to do so. I, I, I hope so, Bobby. <laughs> yeah, we're getting older. we got to keep going, Pops. <laughs> Absolutely. And, Arch, uh, on behalf of Tribe fans everywhere, we wish you the very, very best. Oh, thank you very much. Rick Manning, our latest Tribe tale. 
And that'll do it for this week's edition of Tribe Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, we'll be back again next week for another edition of Tribe Talk. So thanks to Brian Matze, as always, for helping to put together this week's show and uh, doing great work on our look back at some of the great games of 2018. Also, Anthony Alford doing some good work back at our network studios as well. Until next week, this is Jim Rosenhouse reminding you that you've been listening to Tribe Talk on the Cleveland Clinic Indians Radio Network. Radio Network has been brought to you by Progressive, helping Indians fans save hundreds on car insurance.